Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Today's show deals almost entirely with Tuesday's election and some of the local issues on the ballot. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Clay Gordon talks with Columbus City Schools Superintendent Dr. Angela Chapman and School Board President Jennifer Adair about the operating levy and permanent improvement levy voters will be deciding on Tuesday. Doug Petcash talks with Naya Walters with the city about Columbus moving from an at-large system to a hybrid system on city council. This is the first election under that system, and she'll explain what it means and how it works. In the second half hour, Doug talks with Andrew Genther and Joe Motel, candidates for mayor of Columbus on Tuesday. And he'll wrap up the hour talking about Election Day with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. First up on Columbus Perspective, here's Clay Gordon. It's a push to expand funding at one major school district. This is how public education is funded in our state. And uh, that is why we have to come back to our uh, voters. Um, And we speak with Columbus City School Superintendent and the board president about where this funding will all go. Plus hundreds in central Ohio showing support for the thousands of victims of war in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Why one father is flying overseas to the Middle East. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10TV, here's Clay Gordon from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This week of Face the State begins with a countdown to the November election. Hundreds of thousands of voters will be heading to the polls to vote on major state issues, local funding, and the next local leaders of our community. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. I'm Clay Gordon, filling in for Face the State host Doug Petcash. This week, we are focusing on preparing you for the November election. Now, one of the issues many of you will be voting on deals with Ohio's largest school district, a levy with Columbus City Schools. It's an issue 10TV has been covering for months. But where exactly would this funding be used? To answer those questions... Superintendent Dr. Angela Chapman and Board President Jennifer Adair join me now in studio. First, you th- thank you for being with me this morning. A couple of important questions here to start with. President Adair, let's start with you. Uh, how much funding is actually at stake right now, and how did the district arrive on this dollar amount? Right. So we are asking our voters right now for it's a 7.7 mil levy, um, and that is um, we have an operating piece, um, and we have um, a permanent improvement piece for that. And so total, it is um, close to $100 million that we are going to be asking our voters for. Um, And again, that's piece for operating and a piece for our buildings. It's been a month since the board came to a resolution on achievement and the facilities, the, the maintenance for the facilities. Tell me a little bit more about that resolution. How we arrived at uh, placing the permanent improvement uh, piece on, um, you know, really it, there's no secret that our buildings and our building conditions have been deteriorating um, over a long time. Um, and the way that our district has been set up financially is that we have not had dedicated funding uh, stream into our capital budget or permanent improvement fund. The way we've been doing that over time are basically one hit. So uh, we might all remember uh, Operation Fix It. That was a one-time ask we came to the community for that is all done. Um, and we also have pieces where we move money from our operating budget into this permanent improvement fund. That's how we fix the West High School track. So that is not 
the best fiscally responsible way that we can govern. And so our board unanimously voted to ask our voters to establish a dedicated funding source so we could ensure that our buildings are maintained, repaired, and we have replacement um, to ensure that our standards are kept up and we can make improvements uh, to the learning spaces for our students, which we know improves student outcomes. So, Dr. Chapman, tell me about which facilities and, and why those facilities were selected if this funding goes through. Why did we come on some of those buildings? So we want to remind everyone that um, certainly with if we have an increase in our revenue that supports our permanent improvement fund, and we're not building new buildings, this will give us an opportunity to invest in our fixed assets. As President Adair mentioned, some of that includes um, our athletic spaces, so stadiums, tracks, making sure that we maintain them, they're safe, they're accessible for our students to compete on. Um, it also includes making the necessary investments in our learning environments, which include um, upgrading the furniture in our classrooms, upgrading the playgrounds, upgrading cafeteria furniture. So when our students um, are coming to school every day, they, are, they have access and can use furniture that has been updated and resources that have been updated that certainly supports um, a, a, a warm and welcoming learning environment. It also includes more of our fixed assets where we think about um, making investments to make sure our roofs are maintained. Um, HVAC. This was the first school year that we started when all that allowed all of our classrooms to have air conditioning in every classroom. And so we've made those big investments for all of our learning spaces. Now we need to maintain them. We need to make sure that they're, they're being maintained. We're checking on them. We're monitoring them so that they can operate at full capacity. And so those are some of the investments that we would be able to make if we have a continuous revenue stream to support our permanent improvement resources. On the educational side of this, what does that mean for staff and students? So that's the operating side of the budget. And so if we have an increase in funding that supports our operating fund, we'll have an opportunity to maintain several key positions across the district. We think of them as our mental health supports, school counselors, school social workers. Prior to the pandemic, we had um, school counselors were maybe assigned to a building one day a week, which we know does not meet the full needs of our students or our families for that matter. And so with this investment, we will have an opportunity to maintain full staffing levels where we have a full-time counselor at every building across the district. We'll be able to maintain our social worker positions, attendance specialists, school safety staff, um, custodians. It will really give us an opportunity to make sure we have the necessary um, human capital um, on board to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our students and our families. So if this levy fails, what what does this mean for, as you say, the human capital? What does this mean for the staffing at CCS? So, Clay, on our general operating fund, 84% of our operating budget supports staffing. So if we do not see an increase in revenue for our general operating fund, it will take, um, it will require us to make some significant cuts to staffing. And so all of the positions that we were able to stand up um, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, using our ESSER funding, all of those positions will be reduced or eliminated. Um, we'll also not be able to bring back and make sure that we maintain the adequate staffing levels to ensure that every school has 
as a school counselor every day a week. Students don't get to decide when they're having a mental health crisis. They don't plan that out. I'm going to be, you know, in a, in a vulnerable space on a Monday when the counselor's there. Students bring their full selves to school every day, and we need to make sure that we have all of the full complement of mental health resources available to support our students every day of the week. Uh, in addition, we want to expand early childhood access across the district. And so if we're not able to have an increase in revenue, we will not be able to expand early childhood programming. We, our intent was to add six pre-K classrooms across the district. And I would certainly say, um, you know, across the district, we offer pre-K programming to at 62 of our sites and all of those pre-K programs are four or five star rated which is excellent work to the edge speaks excellence um, about the work that our educators are doing in the early childhood space and we'd certainly like to be able to offer more services and programming to our families. So if this is pushed through how soon will Columbus City Schools see some of these programs see these staffing improvements how fast will that happen? It will um, be, all of the changes will take place for the following year. So the ballot initiative is just in a couple of weeks. We'll be working on the planning for um, making these transitions, and um, but we'll be notifying staff certainly sooner than that. Um, typically when we look at um, changes in staffing levels, um, we go through a process in January and February called Article 211. Um, we, some of the language that we use um, for um, making transitions for staffing is articulated in our collective bargaining agreements. And so there are set timelines for when we have to notify staff if positions are going to be added or positions are going to be removed. But all of the changes will be in effect for the following school year. Clay, can I jump in for a second? I just want to make it clear that the this... Uh, asked to our community, this reinvestment that we're asking our community to make is really about stabilizing the district so that we can build, uh, have a strong foundation to build on. So we are talking about uh, regular operating money. This is a cycle that we come to voters um, typically every four years. We're actually seven years out, so we're uh, longer in our cycle. And then, again, having this permanent uh, source of funding for capital needs. All of this builds that foundation so that we can push our district forward um, and uh, you know ensure that we have the vision that our community wants for our schools. And that's something that we're excited that Dr. Chapman's leadership will bring. Mm -hmm. But just making it clear that this is a reinvestment in what we have now. So one of the things we're excited about is the addition of pre-K, but that's actually one of the only few additions that we are making. This is really about stabilizing. And before we even got to this point, just making it really clear that Dr. Chapman's first day on the job as our interim superintendent, we actually, the board asked her uh, to cut, uh, to get us to this point, to go through an exercise, to cut uh, a substantial amount of money out of the non-personnel budget so that we could demonstrate that we are being financially responsible. Um, and so before even coming to the voters, we went through this exercise. So this is foundational. This is to ensure that our children, um, you know, have the things they need in their learning environments so that they can improve, like on the state report card, mm -hmm. so that they can become portrait of a graduate um, student. 
students um, and so that you know they can do all the things that we want them to do. Now, President Adair, the Columbus chapter of the NAACP uh, is not a, a fan of this levy. They think it's going to hurt citizens more than it will help. So I know in the past it's uh, you guys have uh, held off on coming forward with this. Is this the critical time to put this on the ballot? Yeah, there, it is a critical time. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we are seven years and typically it's a four-year cycle. Um, so this is unfortunately the way that school is funded in Ohio. All public schools must come to their voters and we must ask for property tax. And so really, the, you know, and and it's been found unconstitutional, right? So really the um, problems about how schools are funded here are a lot bigger than CCS. And this is really a thing that we as an entire state need to address. Um, you know, it, it, there are, it's hard. Right. These decisions are not easy. But my job as the elected official is to ensure that our schools are funded so that we can educate our children. Public education in Ohio is essential to develop the next group of citizens that are going to be taking the reins in all types of professions, jobs and leadership. And that's my job. That's what I've been elected mm -hmm. to do. And so uh, our board unanimously voted to put this on. And we believe that this is the right time. We're going on the expert advice of our uh, finance and our academic program to understand what we need right now to push us towards the future. President Adair, Dr. Chapman, thank you for joining us today on Face the State. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, the way Columbus City Council operates is about to undergo a big change. I think the biggest thing is that you will have someone who's living in your neighborhood, someone who's acutely aware of your issues. The districts provide a representative that lives within your district that's gonna represent you, but you still have access to all nine members. So I think that's kind of the biggest change. What voters need to know on the district change next. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. Get ready to fall back on November 5th as most states once again mark the end of daylight saving time. Two Verify viewers texted us to ask if, after this year, the U.S. plans to remain on daylight saving time permanently. So, let's verify. Our sources are the Uniform Time Act, the Sunshine Protection Act, and the National Conference of State Legislatures. The Uniform Time Act created a nationwide daylight saving time schedule to move our clocks forward in the spring and back in the fall. The law allows states to opt out of the schedule and remain on standard time year-round, which is why Hawaii, most of Arizona, and U.S. territories don't change their clocks. However, many states would prefer to remain on daylight saving time year-round. In the last five years, 19 states have either enacted legislation or passed resolutions to stay sprung forward all year long. California voters also passed a proposition to stay on daylight saving time, but that still needs action from the state legislature. No state can switch to DST until they get congressional approval. In 2021, the House didn't take up a bill to keep daylight saving time year round, and a similar bill is currently pending with no signs that Congress will vote on it this year. So, no. The U.S. is not planning to remain on daylight saving time year-round.
With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Columbus City Council going through a big change in 2018. Voters decided to switch from a fully at-large system to a hybrid at-large system. Well, under it, council members have to live in the district they actually represent. But voters will actually see all nine districts on their ballots and will vote for each and every one of those seats. The November 7th election is the first time voters will choose council members under this new system. Face of State Moderator Doug Petcash talked with Columbus City Council's in-house council, Naya Walters, about how it all works and how it came about. So, Naya, the big question is, how will things be different now? I think the biggest thing is that you will have someone who's living in your neighborhood, someone who is acutely aware of your issues. The districts provide a representative that lives within your district that's going to represent you, but you still have access to all nine members. So I think that's kind of the biggest change. Um, In addition to that, on your ballot, you will see up to 18 candidates on your general election ballot. So some you'll see two people, some you'll see one, um, but each person will be voted on by each Uh, member of our community. Um, And so that's really exciting because you get that specific attention, but you also still have a council who is still responsible to the whole entire electorate. So if someone lives in District 3, they're still going to see all nine districts on their ballot and get to select the council member from each of those districts that they like. That's correct. Um, So how did this all come about? So um, in 2018, issue three was placed on the ballot um, and voters voted overwhelmingly in favor of this issue um, by 76.06%. So that is a good chunk of the city voters that voted in favor of this. Um, That was to add two additional seats to council and to create nine residential districts. Again, um, the key piece was creating that neighborhood representation across the city. Um, So from that, uh, we set an independent citizen-led commission um, who worked tirelessly um, um, going to community meetings, setting up community meetings, and drawing the maps, trying to really figure out, like, what do our neighbors think is their neighborhood, and what does that look like for them? Um, so we asked all those questions, and then we got hard to work um, at drafting those maps. And so we had several different map releases, three um, specifically, and then essentially after that, the commissioners chose three maps to submit to council, and then council um, took that, and they chose a map. And so now we have a map. And so when people see the maps, which is on the website for city council, um, some of the districts may look bigger than others, but it wasn't based on geographic size, right? That's correct. It's based on population. So the the charter prescribes that the largest district cannot be larger than the smallest district by more than 1%. So each district is roughly 100,638 people. I think it's also important to note that this process will happen every 10 years. So even if people continue to move into these districts, you won't see a change in the map until um, that 10-year 
uh, process, which is kind of in line with the census, similar to what you see at the state and federal level. And so the vote will be for the first time on November 7th, officially, when this will be official. Um, but yeah. when does it actually go into effect? So it'll go into effect on the, uh, January 1st of 2024. So that is when the official effect will be there. And um, you will see at the first council meeting that council members will draw lots um, because this is a full reset of council. So we are going to have to stagger the terms for those members once they come in. Um, and so you will see five council members um, that will get a four-year term, and then you will see four council members that will get a two-year term um, based off the charter requirements. And is that so that there is some overlap and that there's not, you know, every election wouldn't be filling the entire council? Right. So it creates that continuity um, and also staggers those terms so that we have people that are consistently rotating the way the council elections currently ha- operate. And I guess, you know, it's also the big change, too, is that you're adding to council members. Yes. How important is that in your opinion? I think it just creates a better representation. Columbus is a growing city. We're expected to have um, a million additional people here by 2050. And so we need additional people to represent us as our city continues to grow. Um, so I think this will help with our representation. And again, they have to live in that district. I mean, even in order to get on the ballot for these districts, they have to get 250 signatures within that district to get on the ballot. Um, so creating our neighborhood representation and making sure the neighborhoods have a voice in choosing who um, can get on the ballot for their district. And what was the sentiment back in 2018 or before that was building up to why this change needed to be made? So I wasn't here in 2018 when they made the decision, but um, from what I have garnered, um, there was a push from the community to have districts. Um, That proposal went on the ballot, but it failed. And so they came back with a hybrid system. Um, In the hybrid system, voters voted overwhelmingly in favor. So I think Voters in this community really wanted some form of district, but they weren't necessarily 100% sold on having a true ward system. Um, so that's how we got this hybrid system, which allows them to kind of have the best of both worlds. You have someone in your neighborhood who represents your district, but you still have access into, to the entire council. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that will help as we think about our committee structure um, and has, has things um, kind of move forward um, with the council. And you mentioned the true ward system. Yes. And would that be that whoever represents a district is only voted on? by people in the district, and that's the big difference between the hybrid, with the hybrid? Yes. And so, if somebody wants more information about where they live, who's, you know, who would be in their district, um, how would they find that information today? Um, so currently, we only have candidates, so we don't have anyone that is currently representing a district because districts didn't exist before, but if they want more information to figure out um, what district they live in, columbus.gov forward slash districts. Um, we'll provide more information so you can type in your address and it'll um, provide you more information about your district um, and all of those things. Um, in terms of the campaign and knowing who's running your district, all that information can probably be found at your Franklin County Board of Elections. Naya Walters, thank you so much for your time in explaining this brand new system for first time in more than a century. Yeah. It's exciting. I'm so excited to see how this changed representation for our residents. Um, I think just having someone in your neighborhood is going to be extremely helpful in kind of getting that neighborhood-specific issue solved um, when you have a direct person you can go to. Face the State Moderator, Doug Petcash there. Several organizations came together to support both Israel and Palestine in the fight against terrorism. Ohio State University students held a prayer vigil. It's just one local sign of support for the Middle East. Palestinian Americans also filled up Columbus City Council chambers. They're asking council members to show their support for the people in Gaza. But as TV's Andrew Kinsey shows us, that moment quickly turned heated and emotional. This behind me is the community you serve. They are not simply numbers. They are not simply statistics. 
They are people. Frustrations boil over inside Columbus City Council. Dozens of Palestinians showed up, some having to wait outside in the rain, calling for council to condemn Israel's attacks on innocent civilians. We come here today to plead to all but beg for this council to condemn Israeli forces and to stand against in a public declaration of the genocide that is currently happening in Gaza. But when council attempted to speak, protesters interrupted in anger. I don't have the solutions tonight. How many Council had to go into recess twice to restore order, but in the end, council member Shayla Favor gave the strongest opinion on the situation of any council member. I will stand firm in my support for my Palestinian sisters and brothers, and I'm going to stand firm for my support for my Israeli brothers and sisters as well. Unapologetically. For 10TV News, I'm Andrew Kinsey. Columbus Council President Shannon Harden says a meeting will be scheduled to further discuss this issue. All we want is to bring these people home safe and to make sure that our kids that are over there trying to do this difficult, dangerous work have everything that they could need in order to do their job to the best of their ability and come home safely soon. Also happening now, a major effort is underway to provide extra resources to members of the Columbus community who've been called back to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. And TV's Carly Dion explaining more on this effort. Carly. Let's do the boxes first. Normally, when a home is filled with stuffed boxes and bags, you might think a family is preparing for a move. But the Buren household is preparing for a mission. Being, being here uh, so far away from the conflict, um, made me feel almost useless. Jeff and Megan say they felt compelled to go beyond donating money to help Columbus residents called back to Israel to serve in its defense forces. Jeff deciding the only way to help is to go. I feel like it's my job to, to show up and, and lend a hand. When the community caught wind of this effort, they joined in. Just yesterday, dozens of neighbors and friends got together in their home, bringing supplies and packing bags for Jeff's trip. And today, the support kept coming with frequent drop-offs of supplies. We actually have close friends and community members whose sons and daughters are serving in the Army or have been called up to serve in the Army. And so these things will go directly to the people that need them. While Megan works out the logistics of the trip and coordinating volunteers along the way, Jeff will head to Miami in a loaded U-Haul, where he will then fly to Israel with all of the supplies. There is a little bit of fear sort of deep down. I mean, right now I'm very far away from it. Um, but there is no hesitancy. The father of three says while some loved ones are concerned for his safety as he heads into a war zone, he has also received a lot of support for his decision to go. To see the damage and destruction and to know what the further fallout will be for people on both sides of the border is disheartening. Jeff says having to watch this catastrophe unfold has been unbearable. It's because those missiles are falling, frankly, that I feel like I'm going. Carly Dion reporting. Now, Jeff and Megan say if you'd like to support this effort, you could do so by supporting the organization Jewish Columbus. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. 
The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. In honor of all those we've lost to cancer and those still fighting and thriving, like basketball analyst and cancer champion Dick Vitale. I want to beat cancer. I'm going to beat it. That's no doubt in my mind. I'm going to win this battle. Defeating cancer will take all of us. Join our team to help fund game-changing research that saves lives. At the V Foundation, V is for victory over cancer. V is for victory over the odds. V is for victory over health disparities. Victory over setbacks. Victory over the unknown. V is for victory over giving up. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Donate to the V Foundation to join our team and help save lives. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart. And it cannot touch my soul. 100% of donations fund game-changing cancer research. Donate now to the V Foundation at V.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in a couple of minutes, Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV, talks to the candidates for mayor in Columbus. This video on Facebook claims new federal surveillance of small business owners' lives will begin January 1st. Starting 2024, you will need to register or be registered in a new federal database if you have any key role in an LLC or in an S-Corp. Verify viewer Marsha asked us if this is really going to happen. So, Marsha, let's verify. Will most small business owners have to give the federal government more personal information starting in 2024? Our sources are the Corporate Transparency Act, the U.S. Treasury Department, business law firm Baker Hostetler, and Comply Advantage, a regulatory tech company. In 2021, Congress passed the Corporate Transparency Act. The law requires nearly 33 million small business owners to submit reports to the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, starting in 2024. These reports must include personal information about the company's owners and, in some cases, other employees, including their name, home address, birth date, copies of their passport or driver's license, and taxpayer identification number. FinCEN says it needs this information to make it harder for bad actors to hide or benefit from their ill-gotten gains through shell companies or other opaque ownership structures. The law allows the government to penalize owners who do not file their ownership reports or don't keep them updated up to $500 per day. So, yes, most small business owners will have to give the federal government more personal information starting in 2024. Existing companies will have until January 1st, 2025 to file their reports. There are a few exceptions for certain types of businesses, like some nonprofits and larger companies. You can find out more about how to comply with this new law at verifythis.com. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. 
Ahead on Face the State, the race to lead the largest city in Ohio. We're sitting down with the two major candidates for Columbus mayor just days ahead of the November 7th election. Currently serving his second term, Mayor Andrew Ginther hopes voters will keep him in office for four more years. He's being challenged by Joe Motil, who retired from the construction industry after a 40-year career, has run for Columbus City Council and state representative, as well as worked on citizen-driven ballot initiatives. Today, hear their visions for the city of Columbus. Plus, many voters have already cast early and absentee ballots, how the numbers are adding up and what you need to know if you still need to vote. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thanks for joining us this week for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. This week, we are focusing on getting you, the voter, prepared. Later in the show, we'll talk with Secretary of State Frank LaRose about what you need to know to make sure your vote counts. First, though, one of the big races on the ballot for voters in the city of Columbus, the race for mayor between incumbent Andrew Ginther and challenger Joe Motil. We're asking both candidates the same basic questions to give you the chance to hear their stances on issues, including crime, growth, and affordable housing. First up, Mayor Ginther. I started by asking him why he believes voters should re-elect him for a third term. Well, uh, this is a, an exciting and dynamic time in our city's history. We've got the fastest growing economy in the Midwest. We've added 27,000 jobs over the last eight years, working closely with the private sector uh, institutions like Ohio State and Columbus State to help create the workforce of the future. Uh, we have unprecedented investments taking place in housing uh, in two successive ballot issues. We've been able to secure a quarter of a billion dollars to put towards affordable housing because we know that's a huge issue moving forward. And obviously, the work we're doing in safety, we think this comprehensive approach with prevention, intervention, and enforcement is critical. We know we need to continue to invest there, continue to add more officers to the street, particularly as our city gets larger, and all work together to deal with the, the real crisis of gun violence in this city in cities across the country. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute, too. But also, um, maybe it falls right in line with that. But what is your top priority if you're reelected? Obviously, safety. You know, I think it's really safety, housing, and transit, particularly as our city gets ready to grow faster than we've ever grown before. Uh, we think those three areas have to be our top priorities. We don't just want to get bigger. We want to get better. And the way we do that is becoming the safest big city in America, a city where everybody that works here is afford, you know, is able to afford to live here and where uh, we have access to transit corridors to connect people to great paid jobs. And we've reported, you know, speaking of safety, we've reported a lot on uh, violent crime and gun violence recently, mm -hmm. some of it involving young people, as mm -hmm. you know. And as of early October, the city had recorded 120 homicide investigations. So 
you've invested in programs and, mm-hmm. and projects to, to, to look into this. You've created the Office of uh, Violence Prevention. Mm-hmm. What can you do going forward, though, as we see this crime continuing in the city? Well, we actually, when you look at the numbers, saw a 33 percent reduction in homicides in 2022 versus 2021. This year, the only uptick in the homicide area has been in domestic violence homicides. Last year, we had six homicides as a result of domestic violence in the entire year. We're not even through the month of October, and we've already had 22 this year. And so that's certainly a crisis that our Office of Violence Prevention is working with the community on. And we just made an announcement this week for an additional million-dollar investment we're going to make with Choices, the only domestic violence shelter here in Franklin County. They'll be able to serve 28 more women Mm -hmm. of trying to leave domestic violence situations to hopefully prevent those from escalating and resulting in a homicide. But, you know, we're going to have to continue to invest in prevention. So that's summer youth employment, after school programming, uh, internships for young people, uh, more effective interventions. And that's what the Office of Violence Prevention is really working on right now. What's working? How can we do more of it? What's not? And let's stop that and move on to other models that are working. But obviously, police classes are a critical piece to that. And next, by the end of next year, we'll have more officers on the street than ever before in the city's history. And we think that's an important part of our safety plan. Even after the buyout of a couple of years yeah. ago? Yeah, yeah. So uh, these programs and the money that's being pumped in, how do you measure it? How do you make sure it's working? What is, is, yeah, the bottom line is, are we becoming safer? You know, are we able to prevent uh, crime from happening in the first place? Are we able to intervene in new and different ways? So we've launched the Columbus Violence Reduction Initiative under the guidance of renowned criminologist David Kennedy at John Jay College. And that is this group violence intervention effort. We've had two call-in sessions. So we know that fewer than 500 people in a city of a million are committing 50% of the violence in this city. And so these call-in sessions bring these young leaders that are involved in escalating amounts of violence and give them a choice. You can go down a different path, and we will help you with jobs, resources, housing, training. Uh, Or if you stay on this path, uh, you're on a path for either long-term incarceration or death. And we're going to introduce you to the city, county, and federal prosecutors who are going to put you in jail. It's your choice. And we think what we've seen in these two call-in sessions is overwhelming majority of these young people are making the right choice. I want to transition now. You also mentioned you know, affordable housing, yeah. a huge issue, housing crisis across the country, certainly a challenge here. Um, the city, other organizations are putting in affordable housing developments. That's one way to attack it. But you're also seeing, you know, citywide people who are struggling now to pay their mortgages, mm-hmm. um, to pay higher rents. On the bigger picture, what can be done to help people afford their homes other than just, you know, putting in new developments. Well, we have a supply crisis, you know, and you go back to Econ 101. If you have increased demand as our city continues to grow in flat supply, it raises everybody's home, the, the cost of homes, of rents, of everything. So we need to double the number of units coming to market at every price point in this community every year for the next 15 years. There are only about 12,000 units coming to market right now in central Ohio. Indianapolis is smaller than us, and they have 25,000 units. Austin is a little bit larger, and they have 40,000 units. So our job here is to double the number of, of units in that marketplace because that will bring every 
everybody's prices down and make Central Ohio more affordable. And by the way, that's the only way we can avoid what's happened in other high growth cities around the country. And that is where folks get priced out. I mean, we believe everybody that works in this community should be able to afford to live here, too. And the way we do that is rewriting our zoning code. We're rewriting our zoning code for the first time in 70 years. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Columbus 70 years ago to where we are today. A little bit different. A little different, a little bigger. And so we're going to embrace density and height because we know those are the two major contributors to affordability. That's right. Well, you see a lot of empty office spaces downtown now. What's the plan to get people to live there? It's a great opportunity. And we think, you know, what we're seeing and, you know, under the leadership of Jeff Edwards at the PNC building downtown, what's happening there. We think there's a great opportunity uh, for more uh, mixed use development and retrofitting some old office buildings into housing. Uh, So we're excited about that opportunity. Finally, Mayor, I guess broad picture. Why should someone move here, stay here? or raise their family in the city of Columbus? Well, I believe it's because of our people. I always say the sun is always rising in Columbus, and there's always room for one more. I mean, this community is one that is excited about growth, is excited about the future, is committed to innovation and technology and growing our economy. Our goal is to make sure the prosperity that's shared by some is shared by all. We want to make sure that every family in every neighborhood is sharing in our success. And we think there's a great deal of room uh, for everybody in Columbus's future. Now, Mayor Ginther ran unopposed for his second term back in 2019. That is not the case in 2023. This time around, he faces a challenge from Joe Motil. Up next on Face the State, hear Mr. Motil's vision for the city of Columbus. And later, the votes are already coming in. We'll talk with Secretary of State Frank LaRose about voter interest in this election and what you need to know about casting your ballot. Nobody enjoys driving in a freezing cold car, so it's understandable that many drivers like to let their cars warm up for a few minutes before hitting the road. Others are concerned about damaging their cars by driving with a cold engine. Some vehicles even have remote start features that make this easier, but one verified viewer reached out to ask if warming their car could actually damage their engine. So, let's verify. Our sources are the U.S. Department of Energy, Firestone Complete Auto Care, Smart Motors Toyota in Madison, Wisconsin, Chuck's Auto Repair in Seattle, and Napa Auto Parts. Gas-powered cars need oil to keep their engines lubricated. Chuck's Auto Repair explains when the engine is cold, gas may not evaporate completely as it combines with the air. This may lead to excess fuel in the chamber, which causes some of it to condense into the cylinder walls and strip away the lubricating oil. Our sources say this leads to more friction, which causes wear and tear and could eventually shorten the life of your engine. Instead, our sources recommend driving about 30 seconds after starting your car because the engine will warm up faster when the car is being driven. In the past, cars needed to warm up for several minutes to avoid stalling because they used a carburetor. Nearly all cars built in the last 30 years now use electronics to ensure engines get the right combination of air and fuel to run no matter what the temperature is outside. So, yes, warming your car could damage the engine. There is one exception. If you drive an electric vehicle, you may want to warm up your car before unplugging it because heating the cabin uses battery power, which can shorten your range. Whether you are verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. 
Welcome back to Face the State. I'm Doug Petcast. Today we're focusing on the race for Columbus mayor. You heard from Mayor Andrew Ginther. Now it's time to hear from his challenger, Joe Motil. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm asking the candidates the same basic questions to hear their stances on some of the key issues. Now I'd like to welcome Joe Motil in to Face the State. Mr. Motil, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome, sir. First of all, just why should voters elect you as mayor? Well, first of all, I've been a lifelong resident of Columbus for 67 years. I, one of 11 children, grew up in the Clintonville neighborhood, also lived in the university district for about 15. And I have a very, uh, I would say, diversified background in terms of my work ethic as a blue-collar union worker for Labor's Local 423 and also as a construction safety manager for 14 years where I worked on projects of $100 million and, and more. I've been involved with numerous city sanctioned commissions over the last 40 years and also been involved with just about every city governmental department there is. I currently am the 31-year president of the Friends of Tuttle Park, so I have a very strong background in terms of how uh, Recreation and Parks Departments operates. Also was the zoning chairman on the area commission back in the university district, so I understand development not only from the zoning aspect of it, but also as a construction worker of 40 years. The ins and outs and documents and so forth and everything that takes place on a construction site that most people have no idea what goes on. What is your top priority? I wouldn't say there is a exact top priority. We have numerous priorities. Some of my top priorities are affordable housing, crime and safety, infrastructure, transit and mobility, addressing the homelessness, taking care of our seniors, new reinvesting in our neighborhoods finally because of the lack of disinvest, the, the disinvestment that's been taking place for literally decades in our neighborhoods. Those are the priorities that need to be addressed. In every election year, you hear the same promises and campaign rhetoric from our mayor that it's always about the people and about the neighborhoods and about opportunity. But as soon as November's over, it's back to usual. It's taking care of the developers. It's taking care of the rich and powerful this city and not reinvesting into our neighborhoods. I had a press conference on Cleveland Avenue and I asked people to look at Cleveland Avenue from, from 11th Avenue to Weber Road and the deplorable condition of that street that I noticed back in June when I marched in the Juneteenth uh, march down Cleveland Avenue. There are at least 20 missing light poles. There are tree wells that are empty of trees. There are weeds growing up to as high as two feet high in between the curb and the sidewalk. And we can't even maintain our neighborhoods, let alone improve them. So how do we expect our current mayor to do the same? Um, we've reported a lot on violent crime here in the city of Columbus. Uh, some of it recently, some of it involving young people. As of early October, the city had reported or recorded 120 homicide investigations. How would you attack the crime problem in the city of Columbus? Actually, that number is up to 129, and we are on track to reaching the, at least the third highest number of homicides in our city. And the two uh, buying out police officers' contracts at $20 million plus $2 million for deputy chiefs really put, I think, a dent into our police force and really hurt the safety in this in our in our neighborhoods and such. That was a mistake. Uh, you know, that took out. Uh, 100 police officers who had a lot of knowledge and experience on the police force and also we spent 20 million dollars on youth programs over the city. What were the results of that? There were still 
cars being stolen. There was still a youth crime taking place in our neighborhoods. We need to invest back into our neighborhoods again and our young people's lives. Having been involved, like I said, with Rex and Parks for 31 years, the city of Columbus has slashed and burned that budget for decades. I have witnessed it firsthand. And, and now they're trying to, you know, put money back into it, but it's a little bit too late. What has happened in these some of these neighborhoods? It's been generational uh, poverty and things of that nature. A lot of these young youth have actually watched their own parents suffer from you know problems and issues and not getting ahead, and they feel like they they have no chance at all as well. We need to create things like uh, we do need youth programs, but we also need uh, programs that are means tested. We also need to make sure that we know these programs are working and not just throw money across the table and say here now it's up to you to take care of it. But th we, we have to support our police force as well. And say, would you put more officers on the streets? How would you approach the police department? Well, we, we absolutely have to. And, and, and I also, uh, about three decade, uh, decades ago, I aspired to become a police officer. I took the police exam. And I have the utmost respect for the police. I have met with the FOP leadership as well to discuss what their concerns were and what my concerns are. I will hold the police department accountable for anything that takes place in the police department, just as I have have held city officials accountable for corruption and what have you. But we have to work together, and that's the key to the problem. We have to get the community to feel safer with our police as well. You talk about revitalization on Cleveland Avenue and things. Um, let's talk about affordable housing here. Sure. Um, that is one of the key issues. We're seeing a crisis across the country, challenges in the city. How would you approach making sure that there's enough affordable housing for folks to live and work in Columbus? One of the things that I proposed two years ago when our American Rescue Plan dollars were given by the federal government was that the city and county both allocate $60 million each of their American Rescue Plan dollars. I also approached the Columbus Partnership in that same letter and said I would like for them to match that $60 million. That would have created $180 million towards affordable housing for people making $40 million and less, and they could have built at $40, least... $40,000. And less, yeah, correct. You said $40 million. I just wanted to make sure oh, you I'm had sorry, the, the right you. numbers. Four, yeah, $40,000 and less, 60% AMI, and that would have created at least $5,000 units. Units. They squandered a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. The county has only spent roughly 20 to $25 million of their ARP funds. The city has not spent one single dime to been, spend one single unit. I've also proposed that the city, uh, that we allocate more than 8.43% of our hotel motel tax that goes towards affordable housing to 25%. I've also proposed an empty homes tax, which is actually an excise so tax. So you're not talking about raising the hotel tax. You're just talking no. about the allocation. The allocation, where that money goes. That's correct. The allocation of those funds, correct. And so also I proposed an empty homes tax, which is an excise tax on vacant buildings that are, there's thousands of them throughout our neighborhoods, to get these absentee landlords, to get those houses on the market as an incentive. If they don't, they get taxed. That money goes towards an affordable housing trust fund. We have yep. just less than a minute left right now. I want to know, I want to ask you, you've said you've been here 67 years. Why should someone move here, stay here, or raise a family here? Well, I've stayed here because I, I love Columbus. I always have. Uh, you know, my, much of my family still lives here. I've raised my two children here. I've got an 11-year-old grandson that I'm, I'm hoping will also enjoy the, the city and stay here. But 
we, we need to make improvements for everybody. We cannot, eight out of the ten jobs in the city of Columbus cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment. We need to make sure there's opportunity for everyone. And we just don't say this at election time either. We actually have to do, take care of things. I am running as the mayor of the people. I have been working with the people of Columbus and will continue to do that. I am not beholden to the rich and powerful of this city. We need somebody who's independent of that, who can actually be a leader and not be led by those people. Well, important races and big issues are on the ballot. Did you already vote early or send in an absentee ballot? We'll talk with Secretary of State Frank LaRose about how those are adding up, voting security, and what you need to know ahead of November 7th if you haven't voted yet. That's next. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go, but I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there, providing hot meals, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. To learn more, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. At first glance, Terrence and Shania have nothing in common. Terrence is a musician. He is constantly traveling. He is 32 years old, single with no kids, and started smoking when he was 16. Shania, on the other hand, just turned 45. She owns a coffee shop. She is married with two kids and has never smoked. What makes Terrence and Shania similar is that they both have been diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, and it was caught early. That's right. Small cell lung cancer can affect anyone. The good news is early lung cancer screenings can detect small cell lung cancer before it spreads, when the disease is most treatable. Join Stand Up to Cancer and Jazz Pharmaceuticals to raise awareness of small cell lung cancer and accelerate the pace of research. Ask your healthcare provider about screening options that might be right for you or a loved one. Visit standuptocancer.org lung to learn more. The next disaster is coming. The time to get ready is now. Make a plan. Choose meetup locations and keep a contact list. Build a kit with food and water. Don't forget your pets. Keep extra medicine on hand. Make copies of key documents and keep them somewhere safe. Stay informed, learn about local hazards, and sign up for alerts. Be ready. Learn more at americares.org slash send us in. Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected how we live our daily lives. Today, we also face a mental health pandemic that threatens our well-being as we attempt to rebuild our social networks and communities. The pandemic has reminded us to value family, community, and our human connections. However, it has also left many of us feeling more isolated, confused, and alone, struggling to find meaning amid loss and uncertainty. Today, one in five Americans experience emotional and mental health challenges. But many of us do not understand what we are facing or know how to ask for help. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we understand what you are going through, and we are here to help. Our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all. We work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental health. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit MentallyHealthyNation.org to learn more. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. 
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. The election has actually been underway for weeks. A lot of votes have already been cast, but not yet counted. Early and absentee voting started on October 11th. By my math, based on the Secretary of State's office's daily absentee report counts, as of October 24th, nearly 200,000 people had already voted early in person and nearly 110,000 had voted by absentee ballots, 108,512. Early and absentee voting run through Sunday, November 5th. Then on Election Day, November 7th, polls will be open from 6.30 in the morning until 7.30 at night. Also, if not returned by mail, you have to get your absentee ballot to your Board of Elections by the time polls close Election Day. Helping us prep you for the November 7th election today is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Mr. LaRose, thank you for being here today. Thank you. We're excited. Election Day is right around the corner, but as you mentioned, uh, early voting is already well underway. And- All right. So um, what are you... <sighs> What do those early voting numbers say to you? You got almost yeah. 300,000 people. Well, it tells me that Ohioans continue to trust the process of early voting. They know that it's a secure and a convenient way to vote. Listen, Ohio's had this long trend over the five years I've been in this office of seeing strong participation. We had a record-breaking election in 2020, again in 2022. Even last August when we had a special election, just as I predicted, there was strong turnout for that. Ohioans are engaged and they know how important it is and they they, they show up to vote, whether they take advantage of early voting, absentee voting, or election day Are those voting. early voting numbers uh, higher, lower uh, compared to past elections? I, I think they were about as we expected, but I'll say this. It's very localized in an election like this. Of course, there's two statewide issues that are driving a lot of attention and excitement among voters on, on, on both sides, but it comes down to maybe in your town, there's a really exciting mayor's race, or a school levy, or a school district race, and that drives turnout at a very localized level. In some communities, maybe you don't have such an exciting mayor's race, and so fewer people are turning out there. What are you anticipating overall for voter turnout? We're anticipating a high number. I don't predict a specific number, but we're always ready. Right? We always want 100%, and we're never going to rest until we get to that. But we're going to see high turnout. Ohioans turn out to vote because they know it's convenient, and they know it really makes a difference, especially with two local or two uh, uh, statewide issues on the ballot. So something new this year is that voters do have to bring a valid photo ID to their polling place. Here is a list of the valid IDs. Those include an Ohio driver's license, U.S. passport, U.S. military ID card, a Veterans Affairs ID card. Secretary LaRose, why did the legislature enact this at the end of last year going forward for this year to have to have a valid ID? Well, this is something that Ohioans on both sides of the aisle had been interested in getting done for a long time. They want to make sure that when a voter shows up that they are who they say they are. And the good news is this. For the vast majority of us, it doesn't change anything. Historically, 98 percent of voters already come with a state ID or a driver's license. There was that small percentage that previously took advantage of what they called the alternative forms of ID, like a pay stub or a utility bill. Those are gone now. You've got to have a photo ID. But the good news is this. Uh, you've got the chance still to go and get a free ID at any BMV if you don't have one. Okay. So there's no cost for that. And even if you show up on Election Day without one, the dog ate it or you lost it or whatever else, even then you're not left out of the process. You're given what's called a provisional ballot, goes in a separate envelope. It's not counted on Election Night, but it will be counted as part of the final official tally three weeks later. 
later, as long as you come in and prove your identity in the few days after the election. Voters want to make sure and know that their votes are going to count, yeah. they're secure and everything. What is Ohio doing to make sure that the counting process, the voting process, yeah. is secure than that every vote's going to count? This is one of those areas where we absolutely lead the nation. I testified in front of the Pennsylvania State Senate last year uh, and last uh, month, for, the, for that matter. I've done it a couple times because they want to know how is it Ohio continues to shine when, when they've had some struggles. And it starts with the bipartisan oversight of the process. In a time where it feels like in Washington, Republicans and Democrats can't agree that today's Sunday, at your board of elections, they're working together in a really uh, cohesive, bipartisan way to run elections. It comes down to maintaining accurate voter rolls. I don't apologize for taking dead people off the voter rolls and those who move out of state. It comes down to the fact that we always have paper for every ballot. And so, yes, we tabulate the results on election night using a machine because we want to have those results before we go to bed. But then three weeks later, we count the hard copy paper, compare it to the electronic results side by side. That redundancy is in and of itself a security procedure. And again, I think people might be curious about what happens with absentee ballots and yep. those early voting ballots. Where do those go? They're not counted yet, right? No, but they're processed and ready to count. We process them as soon as they come in. That means we check the ID. A Republican and a Democrat sit there and verify that the name, the date of birth, the address is all correct. We flatten the thing out so so it's ready to go through the scanner. And when the polls close at 7.30 on election night, the very first ballots counted are those absentee mm -hmm. ballots and those early ballots because they're already ready to go. Well, Mr. LaRose, thank you for uh, helping us get our viewers and voters ready for the big election this it's time. It's so important. VoteOhio.gov for all the information. Sign up to be a poll worker, what IDs you need, and where your polling location is. All that's at our website, VoteOhio.gov. All right. Thank you, sir. We all have it. We have it also very conveniently, too. For a breakdown of the issues and your voting guide, just text the word VOTE to 614-460-3345. We'll send the information right to your phone. Thank you for joining me this week for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. I'll see you back here next Sunday morning. That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Again, the polls are open on Tuesday from 730 a.m. until 630 p.m. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.